Thank you for the welcome. I must admit I was a bit nervous when I came in and saw the tables. Um, many, many years ago, something like this was happening and those in leadership had put um, sheets of paper on the tables for people to write on. I never realised how many um, paper plane designs there are. <laughs> that was mostly young people, by the way. In fact, I think it was all of them. Um, this probably doesn't mean much, but uh, I can commend the junipers to you. Um, not that you probably need that. Uh, I worked with David, or he, he and I worked together at Albany Baptist for, I think it was 12 years, and a uh, great couple um, worth supporting. I don't even know how to say this, but his name is Louis Vigorito, and he sang, uh, I used to care, but now I don't. John Newton wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found. But now indicates that something's changed, and it has. Something new, something radical, something stunning. A dramatic turning point in history. God has done something amazing, life-changing. Once helpless, hopeless, slaves under wrath, but now, but now, God has changed all that in Jesus. Before we get to it, um, there's a bit of a conundrum. God faced a twofold conundrum. It's there in verse uh, 23, the first part. All have sinned. Human beings deny the indicators of God's eternal nature and power displayed in creation. They refuse to recognise him as God. They reject the truth that they're dependent on him. They refuse to submit to him and despise him by ignoring him. Like a coup, they removed him from office in their minds, exchanged the worship of the true God for themselves. They de-godded God, made themselves God. And everyone without exception has failed to be and to do what God wants. In relation to God, rebellion. In relation to others, lovelessness. In relation to ourselves, self-centeredness. All have sinned. And underlying this is a truth about our natures. Um, glory is one of those sort of difficult words to get hold of, but it, it seems to be the outshining of God's holiness, the outshining of God's essential nature. And men and women are equally created as image bearers of God, godlike in character and nature. But in our present state, we lack the glory. 
we no longer have and display that radiating righteousness of God. All human beings fall short of the glory that God intended, the God-likeness, the righteousness that God intended. No doubt some people act worse than others, but everyone lacks that righteousness and falls short of the glory of God, falls short of that original image that God intended. But there's another part of the conundrum to face. It has to do with God's justice or his righteousness. Um, in verse 25, it says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. For centuries, God was exceedingly kind. Uh, and take David as an example hot tempered, an adulterer, a murderer, or at least an accomplice. To murder, uh, God showed him. Uh, he, David showed favoritism. He failed to deal with a son who wanted to usurp his throne. He allowed his favourite general to murder people. Yet God favoured him, established his dynasty, promised David that from his family the promised Messiah, the rescuer, would come. David lacked, but God favoured him. That's not right. God is not righteous. He's not just. Same word. He lacks integrity. God can't be righteous and good to sinners, can he? That's the conundrum, the other part of the conundrum. But before we move on, if you're searching for meaning, puzzling over issues of personal identity and understanding yourself, struggling to make sense of yourself, the world, others, can I plead with you, don't look inside. Don't look within yourself for the answer which is the pattern in our culture. Don't make yourself the arbiter of reality, the judge of reality. Why? Because as we've just seen, the inside of us is warped. It's damaged. Our understanding is distorted. We can't and don't see true truth or reality. Instead, I encourage you to look out. The true and living God has done something extraordinary. God solved the conundrum through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He makes the point before he gets to that, that God did not grant saving righteousness or bring righteousness through the old covenant law. Uh, in the past, um, God's people lived under the Mosaic covenant, under the law of Moses. 
They lived under the standards and principles of that covenant. It's summarised in the Ten Commandments, but it's all there in Deuteronomy if you want to read it. It was impossible to think of God, God's righteousness apart from the blessings and curses of that covenant. But now in history, at this time, God has made his righteousness available in another way, in another covenant, in another agreement. And as some of you probably know, that was shocking news to the Jewish people. And it's also shocking news to any who relies on their goodness. But it is actually good news to the world. Because God grants saving righteousness by and through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one revealed in the pages of the New Testament and pointed to in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, God's appointed ruler, or if you like, his Messiah, his Christ, his King. Jesus, who was born, lived uh, a stunning life, really. Crucified, buried, risen, ascended, returning. This Jesus, not a creation, my creation or your creation, but that Jesus, God grants his righteousness, his saving righteousness, through this Jesus. And Paul uh, sums it up in Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. Well, there's no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. And God has justified, or as one person put it to show that it's the same sort of word, God has righteous. It's not a word, but... Um, righteous or justified people through Jesus. God, justify equals righteous. We are in righteousness territory. So what, it is, what is it to be justified or righteous? God doesn't make an unrighteous person righteous. Uh, this is different from, uh, you're probably aware that when outgoing presidents of the United States can pardon people, it's always controversial, um, and I don't know how many they can pardon. Um, they also pardon turkeys, apparently. Um, but he's allowed to pardon people. Justification is very different from that, because forgiveness or pardon which overlooks wrongdoing and declines to exercise justice is pardoned without principle. It's really quite meaningless. But when God righteouses people, so he's not declaring bad people good. Now, in justification, God declares a person free of the liability that is on them because of their sin, because of their breaking of his law. And he does it by placing... The rightness, I can't think of another word than righteousness, to his or her account. See, everyone bears this liability, uh, as we've seen. All are guilty. Jesus obeyed the law completely, inwardly and outwardly. And on the cross he bears human guilt. God constitutes him a lawbreaker. He becomes their the greatest lawbreaker, the greatest sinner ever.
and in turn his perfect righteousness both in his living and his obedient dying is credited to those who believe. Those who thus trust in Christ are right with him, in right standing with him. God declares them right, free of that liability and right with him. And now his children in other passages. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more stunning, um, more glorious, more magnificent than this. That the righteous God who does not do anything wrong calls those who do wrong all the time his children declaring them right with himself. How did he do it? He did it, first of all, by the redemption that came by Jesus, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Imagine you're in, you're in business in the ancient world and uh, economic circumstances change, uh, GFC happens, and you lose everything and you face a mountain of debt. Uh, you couldn't declare bankrupt in those days. The only thing you can do is sell yourself into economic slavery to your creditor. You became a slave of your creditor. That's the origin of the term bond slave. But you're extremely fortunate. A distant relative, a wealthy relative, fortunately, Uncle Fred, he is of your predicament and he decides he will redeem you. This is how it works. Uncle Fred enters into negotiation with your now owner, creditor. They decide a price um, that uh, your worth or the debt was worth. So Uncle Fred pays the price not to the creditor but to the priests at the local temple. The temple then pays, pays the price to the one who owns you now, the gods. You can see how all sorts of corruption and stuff could happen, but anyway. Um, so you are now the slave of that temple's god or gods. You're no longer the slave of the man who you owed all the money. Ownership is transferred to the gods. Of course, because the gods can't speak or act or enforce slavery, you're free to do what you like. You're now free. You're free, supposedly, to serve the gods. You are redeemed. Jesus redeems sinners, sets them free from the sin that has grabbed them and grips them by the payment of his life, by a ransom. By his sacrifice as a substitute, he sets them free. And so those who trust in Jesus become God's bond slaves. They've been set free from sin to 
serve the living God. They belong to him. God justifies those who have been redeemed, set free. Again, how utterly amazing this is. Slaves, helpless, hopeless, more than that. How grateful we should be to God. This is a magnificent gift. And then the other side, other part of that, God puts people right with himself by presenting Jesus as a propitiation. In the translation that was read, it was sacrifice of atonement. Not only is everyone enslaved by nature, falling short of the glory of God, but a forbidding, wrath-laden cloud hangs over everyone. And God changes that through Jesus by Jesus, by making Jesus a propitiation for our sins. And it's repeated in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Propitiation is that big word which, by which God becomes propitious or favourable, is more intel, in, uh, uh, understood. He is not favourably disposed toward us. His wrath, Paul says in chapter 1, revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But now through the death of Jesus, he is propitiated. His wrath is set aside and he looks on his people with favour. And the background is once again the religious scene. Um, the gods were a changeable lot. They could be kind and favourable. If they were, the crops would be good. Or they could turn nasty and the crops would die. So you gave them stuff. Um, you offered sacrifices to keep them propitious, to keep them favourable, to keep them on side. God is not like the precious gods at all, not even close. But his wrath is real and holy and the death of Jesus is the sacrifice which satisfies God's justice. It's a turning away of his holy wrath through the death of Jesus. God propitiating God. It's, it's woefully inadequate as all analogies are uh, when it comes to the living God, but maybe this will help. You, know, you, you decide. I'm colour blind. I've lived with that colour deficiency all my life. Um, it got me into trouble at school because I coloured things in the wrong colour and it ruled out, as you probably know, certain careers. And interestingly, recent research has thrown up something um, that made sense of my experience. Apparently, colourblind people don't see... Uh, uh, Colourblind people uh, see colour far less intensely than those who are not afflicted. Um, so I can see colour, I can't identify them. But I don't see colour in vivid hues. I don't see them dramatically as those who are not colourblind see them. My life is much duller. But one good thing about it is 
I am never offended by clashing colours. My wife has to choose the <laughs> combinations. Otherwise, um, you can wear whatever combination you like and it's fine by me. I don't notice. But, and here's the point, many of you are affected. Many people have a visceral reaction when certain colours are combined. Their aesthetic sense, or whatever it is, is offended, it's jarred. Unrighteousness is an offence to God's holy nature. It clashes with his lovely, happy, pure, righteous nature. He finds our unrighteousness and idolatry offensive. It jars with his, perf with his perfection. And his wrath is that offence against that unrighteousness. But now he reveals his love by justifying believers, believing sinners through those who willingly... Uh, he justifies sinners through his son who propitiated and turned away his holy anger. Jesus died. The enormous weight of human sin bore down on his frail frame. Terrible weight of holy wrath crushed him. He died, the sin bearer, the wrath taker. He pays the ransom price and because of his sacrifice, God justifies all righteousness people. Declares them free of liability, right with him, clothed in his perfection. Who would have thought it? It could only be God's idea. The offended one putting people right with himself. It's actually brilliant. Paul thought so anyway. After laying out the whole panoply of God's righteousness, he exclaims in uh, Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him the glory forever. Amen. Paul never got over this righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Where are you today in relation to God? Enslaved by sin? Lost? Guilty? And the great problem is you can't change that. The chains are too big and too tight. And God's righteousness is an unreachable peak with those chains, no matter how good a climber you are. But someone did climb it.
only Jesus, but he did. One more thing. This saving righteousness is available to everyone, but on condition of faith. And Paul is quite emphatic about that. Verses 22, 25 and 26. God's righteousness is available to everyone, irrespective of ethnicity, colour of skin, family origin, education or social status. Everyone lacks the righteousness of God. Everyone desperately needs the righteousness of God. And God has granted this in Jesus. He is the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is available to everyone, irrespective of ethnicity, education, social standing, and whatever else uh, humans dream up to uh, pose divisions between people. And he makes it really clear in Ephesians that he might create in himself one new man or one new body in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. God's saving righteousness is available to all, irrespective of ethnicity and anything else. I suppose it's inevitable that... Um, people who still aren't made whole completely, uh, people in a particular culture or different ethnicity form um, views of Christianity and make it captive to their culture. Um, or they can have different expressions of that. Western Christianity, I've heard, Aboriginal Christianity, Eastern Christianity, Asian Christianity, African Christianity. And it's true in a sense, isn't it, that different expressions can appear in different cultures. But the truth does not alter across cultures. God's saving righteousness is open to all. All the people, groups of the world, without exception. But God's righteousness is available to all, but only on condition of faith. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Available to all, but only on condition of faith. The righteousness comes through faith alone. To anyone who trusts the, the, the Christ who came and died, and that's irrespective of ethnic identity or what, a God will grant saving righteousness. And that's been the case always. It was never by keeping the Old Testament law. It was never by being Jewish. It was never by being Gentile. Never by being religious. It was never by being good as we define good. God's righteousness has always been open to all but only by faith. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Old Testament. God's saving righteousness is for those who believe, those who abandon all self-effort and rely completely on him and his cross work. William Cowper, um, some of you may be familiar with him, was a famous English poet and songwriter. And unlike 
lots of people. He became famous in, even in his own lifetime. And, but what is not so well known is that he suffered severe and deep depression, would be classified as that today, and um, many times in his life, no, sorry, that's, that's wrong, two or three times he was suicidal and had to be protected from his own uh, instincts. But in 1759, when he was 28 years old, he had a total mental breakdown and tried uh, three different ways to commit suicide. He became utterly convinced that he was damned beyond hope, as he put it. And in December 1763, he was committed to St Albans Insane Asylum, where there was a doctor, um, Dr Nathaniel Cotton, who was tending the patients and who was really interested in um, this whole depression thing. But by God's wonderful design, Cotton was also an evangelical believer, a lover of God and the gospel. And he came to love Cowper himself and always, because of Cowper's um, um, situation, he always held out hope to him, um, re repeatedly, just kept gently repeating it to him in spite of um, Cowper's uh, insistence that he was damned and beyond hope. And six months into his stay, Cowper found a Bible lying, not by accident, on a bench in the garden. And he happened to look up John 11 and said, and saw, as he said, so much benevolence, mercy, goodness and sympathy with miserable men in our Saviour's conduct that he felt a little ray of hope lighting up. Then he turned to Romans 3.25, um, the passage we're looking at today. And this was the key turning point in his life. Immediately, I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. God has solved a massive conundrum, covered our sin, vindicated his righteousness by Jesus. Human sin heaped on him, in turn his righteousness heaped on all who trust him. And it follows that there is and was there was and is no other way of saving righteousness apart from what God has done in Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. Does that sound narrow? Maybe if we put it this way, only Jesus is able, only Jesus has the capability to grant this righteousness. It's futile to seek it in anyone or anything else. Whatever you or I do, we cannot achieve this righteousness. Never. There is nowhere else to go. 
only to God. But how we should thank him that he has.